welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, in which we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. For the last 70 years, Taiwan and mainland China have remained mostly separated. While China has encouraged interaction in the hope of a peaceful reunification, they've sought to isolate Tapai internationally, offering inducements and economic incentives to those who might engage. In recent months, there could be a sign that Beijing is contemplating taking Taiwan by force, with an increase of military activity near the island. To discuss this shift, the implications for Taiwan, and the international dilemma, I'm joined by Dr. Ariana Schuyler Mastro, a Centre Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Thank you for joining me, Ariana. Thank you for having me. So I thought we might just start with a, a little bit of a, a background as to what it has been up until this point, more or less. So China and Taiwan have existed as separate entities for more than 70 years. There's been some tension across the Taiwan Strait, but in recent years, it's more or less been stable. So what, in your view, has changed and, and what kind of timeline could there be on unification? I think the number one thing that has changed is China's military capabilities. For me, it wasn't a surprise, for example, that we saw an increase in Chinese aggressiveness in the South China Sea right when they had, for the first time, the ability to sail ships to the South China Sea, right? And so when it comes to the Taiwan Strait, what people don't realize is how far the military has come in the past two decades. In 2005, for example, the Taiwan invasion plan was basically to commandeer some fishing vessels and try to paddle your way over. I mean, we all knew that if Taiwan declared independence, China would fight regardless of how ready it was to do so. But since that period, since what we call the third Taiwan Strait crisis, 1995, 1996, all the United States had to do is sail aircraft carrier battle group in the vicinity of Taiwan, and that's enough to deter China. They learned from that. And what they learned was not, let's not be aggressive towards Taiwan. What they learned is, let's have the military capabilities so the United States doesn't try that a second Mm. time. And so they've now developed everything from their own amphibious landing capabilities to a modern, sophisticated Navy, as well as uh, missiles that can hit aircraft carriers, moving targets at sea. And so now for the first time, probably since the founding of the People's Republic of China, they have real military options to take the island by force. And what have they done to indicate that they've got these options? I mean, I know that they have this capability, but are they demonstrating it more frequently or more aggressively in your view? So I think they're less concerned about demonstrating it in terms of signaling and more exercises to refine and hone their readiness. So, Mm. for example, what we look at is things like Chinese military plans. The Chinese embarked on a major military reform in 2013, in which Xi Jinping lays out, you know, what are their goals? What are their targets? At the end of that reform program in 2020, they revised their strategic guidelines for the fifth time in their history, saying, you know, we're now ready basically to do joint operations, which are the type of operations necessary to take Taiwan. So the first thing we look at is really like five-year plans. You know, what are they buying? What are they building? And what are they practicing? And the PLA mm. has been very focused on the campaigns relevant for Taiwan. And then in my own discussions with Chinese military, uh, starting about 18 months ago, two years ago, they started to tell me that they're ready. Now, I would say I think they need a couple more years 
to practice and especially home command and control. Some scholars and analysts think maybe they need more than a couple of years, or maybe they need 10 years. But what's important is that the Chinese seem to think they're ready now. So I think a lot of the increased activity we see it around Taiwan is more to demonstrate that they have this capability. So, you know, the United States, Taiwan should think twice now about messing with them. But for the most part, it really is the more long-term military modernization programs that give me pause. Yeah. Okay. So the timeline that you just said is you think they need a couple more years. My understanding of the word couple is that it's two. Are you using mm. it in that context that you think they need a couple more years? They think they're ready right. now. So it's, yeah. So it's all about sort of risk management. There is still uncertainty. They've done all the right things, right? But wars are hard to predict. You don't know how your military is going to perform in the moment. And Xi Jinping himself has articulated his uncertainty about how the military would perform when they actually need to. Mm. So if I had to place my bets, if I were going to look at a really more risk averse Chinese leadership on this, I think they would want to try those capabilities out first, maybe do a small scale landing against a Southeast Asian country. My bets are on Vietnam, sorry, Vietnam, you know, take an island so they can practice the logistics, practice the interaction between the Air Force, the Navy, its reliance on the strategic support force, et cetera, et cetera, and fix any errors they might see before they go for a bigger target like Taiwan. So I think as long as nothing major changes, I would guess probably, you know, five, six years. Okay. Wow. All right. There's a lot to unpack here. So why is China in your view, and also from the impressions that you get of talking to Chinese counterparts and to the Chinese sentiment, why is this something that needs to happen? Why are you so sure that unification on some level is going to happen? Well, in my analysis in Chinese behavior, mm. uh, I sort of take it as a rule to believe what the Chinese tell me. That has never really led me astray in the past. So I speak and read Chinese. So I pay a lot of attention to party documents, official media, my interactions with the military and other scholars, and especially when they're telling me things that people don't want to hear, right? So there's, of course, incentives to lie or misrepresent, as we would say, in international relations. But in my view, the incentives to misrepresent would be, you know, to be more peaceful, to be more deceitful about, you know, what their ultimate intentions are. But when it comes to Taiwan, they're very clear. Even the most moderate people would say, oh, we are willing to pay any cost. Mm. There is no cost that is too high to promote the unification, whether it's political leaders, whether it's the media, whether it's public opinion polling or just my anecdotal interactions with other Chinese scholars and strategists. I've never heard anyone diverge from that viewpoint that this is the ultimate prize. Now, there's different questions of, well, do they have to fight for it or not? Yeah, I don't think it's particularly insightful to say that China would prefer to get Taiwan without having to pay any costs. Yeah, I mean, all countries prefer to get what they want without fighting wars. The question once pushed is, if Taiwan will never join the fold peacefully, then what? And even the most moderate views are the ones who have been the most critical of my foreign affairs piece ultimately have to concede. Well, if that's the case, you know, the 2005 anti-secession law is very clear. If peaceful reunification does not work, the only option is armed reunification. Mm. What does um, public sentiment say about the prospect of taking Taiwan by force? Is that something that China is, is all going along with? Beyond just the sort of anecdotal, me talking to friends and colleagues there, there was one poll which I referenced in my foreign affairs article, which is a couple years old now, but that asked, do you support 
armed reunification with Taiwan, even if it causes a major war? Mm. And, you know, when do you think this should happen? And about 70 percent, you know, were in very strong support. And most of them argued that this should happen within three to five years. Only 11 percent of respondents said it could wait over 10 years. Now, some critics might say, you know, this is official kind of nationalistic media. Maybe they make up these polls. You know, I don't think that's the case. I, I do think there is some truth to most of what's being reported, even if it is party propaganda. But mm. even if you believe they made that up, that is still informative. Why is it important for the party to be articulating that the Chinese people want a major war over Taiwan in the next three to five years? So I, I still think it's a useful indicator even if it isn't completely accurate and authentic capturing of Chinese sentiment. Though, again, based on my interactions, that seems to capture what I've heard. Yeah. Okay. So last year, China brought in a new security law into Hong Kong. I think it was in June 2020. That has had major sweeping changes over there. Is Taiwan watching what's happening in Hong Kong and saying, okay, this is a a warning sign for us, a bit of a canary in a coal mine kind of situation? I mean, yes and no. I say no because, I mean, did anyone have any doubts Mm. about Chinese intentions towards Taiwan? Did anyone have any doubts that China would be willing to use the highest levels of force against the people of Taiwan to achieve what they see as their territorial integrity and sovereignty? I mean, what happened in Hong Kong, to me, it's more surprising that people were surprised. I find very interesting the Chinese interpretation which is that actually how China responded in Hong Kong demonstrates a great deal of patience. You know, Hong Kong is completely under Chinese control. They could have rolled in with tanks like they did in Tiananmen, but they didn't. Mm. Right? So that's how I think a lot of people in China see it. You know, they deserve a pat on the back for not resorting to that level of force. Now, Taiwan's different because they don't physically control Taiwan, right? So they don't have these lower level options. They can't infiltrate you know, the police force with their own people's armed police to try to control populations. You know, they don't have a lower level coercive options. They just have sort of a higher level of escalation. But I don't know. In my view, I say yes and no, because were there people in Taiwan who thought, yeah, you know, I think we could unify with mainland China and they would leave us alone and we could live our lives the way we do today. And now because of Hong Kong, we doubt this optimistic view. I think they were relatively pessimistic about what a future under Chinese control looked like even before Hong Kong. So maybe that just, you know, consolidated, solidified. Yeah. My next question here has essentially just been uh, dropped into the Q&A by one of the people listening. So I might let Catherine come in and ask her question at this point, if that's okay, just to mix it up a bit. Yeah, this is Catherine Hiller. I'm with the Financial Times. I'm the Greater China Correspondent and I'm based in Taiwan. I am curious about what exactly Chinese military counterparts uh, think they are ready to do in terms of military action. There have, of course, been a lot of discussions in the past over what a Chinese annexation might look like. So I'm, I'm curious if this means that they are saying they're ready to stage a full-scale amphibious invasion or if they're talking about airdropping people in and then maybe taking a port and then shipping the rest in or whether we're talking about just flattening the whole place with missiles or maybe scaring the Taiwanese government into a state that they're ready to negotiate. And then beyond taking Taiwan, are they also confident that they can occupy the whole place and keep it under control. That's been the part of the exercise that's been considered maybe the most challenging in the past. 
Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, it allows me to be a bit more clear in, in what I was saying. So I'm referring to the joint island landing campaign, the full-on amphibious assault, because the joint missile campaign, which you sort of mentioned, the lobbying of missiles over to Taiwan to force their political capitulation, the blockade, and lastly, sort of the counter-intervention campaign. So that's attacking the United States to degrade and, and slow down their, the U.S. ability to respond. China's been able to do those actually for quite some time. When we started talking about anti-access area denial strategies 10 years ago, that was already the case. So the big debate now among military experts is the amphibious assault, like a full-scale landing. And U.S. strategists have different viewpoints on how ready they are. There's also a lot of mirror imaging. You know, the United States, for example, might want certain ratios of forces and China might be comfortable with less. I mean, in my understanding of the Chinese military, they tend to be comfortable with less capability to achieve the same goals that the U.S. military is. The Chinese military counterparts that I'm talking about tell me that they can do the landing, that they're confident they can do that joint operation. And again, I think they might have more trouble than they think. But if they're confident and they're conveying that confidence to Xi Jinping in the higher levels, that could encourage armed unification. To your second point, I think this is a perfect example of mirror imaging that happens, especially in the United States after experiences with Afghanistan and Iraq. The PLA is not concerned with the occupation of the island of Taiwan. The hard part is the landing. Once the PLA has boots on the ground and political control over the island, then the rest is easy. They haven't fought a war since 1979. They've never done this type of operation. But China is an expert in internal repression. So the idea that they would have difficulties occupying Taiwan, I don't see any indication in PLA writings or discussions that this is a primary concern. Maybe part of it is because, I mean, who would be fighting? Who would be fighting in Taiwan? I guess, you know, former military could still have the capabilities, willingness and, and arms to fight. But even there, you know, there are more potentially more people's armed police than there are young men in Taiwan. There are more Uyghurs in internment camps, by many estimates, than there are young men in Taiwan. So I don't think that's really shaping their thinking on the costs of this campaign. So the main costs of this campaign then, by extension, would be an international response. And I'm sure that Taiwan would be hoping that the US is enough of a deterrent in this instance. So the Biden administration has made stern statements regarding China, Taiwan and Asian security, and there's been a stress on revitalizing US alliances. Do you expect an international reaction in such an instance, or is Biden bluffing? The question is, what would the international reaction be? Mm. And would it be severe and long-term enough that it could really threaten China's rejuvenation, right? Like, will there be three to five years of economic sanctions? Sure. Is that enough to make the prize of Taiwan not worth it? Probably not. I mean, I think the international reaction would have to be such that the world after an attack on Taiwan can never be the same as the world before. And my sense is that's where the Biden administration is trying to get to. By having more coordination and collaboration with allies and partners, what we're trying to signal to Beijing is this isn't going to be you know, some sort of symbolic reaction on the part of other countries to wave their finger or name and shame, but then we go on as business as usual. I only see the startings of that strategy. So I think we're a long way off 
from that being the reality of a potential response and then being able to credibly signal that to Beijing. But I think that is a fruitful direction that the administration is going in. And what do you think the expectation will be on America's allies? So uh, here down in Australia, we've kind of got a lot of skin in the game because we see that as being vaguely in our region or us being a key player in that sort of thing. What's your sense on it? And is that a discussion that you've been involved in at any point? I have found it very interesting uh, and I've learned a lot by being here in Australia. I think, you know, I'm not an Australia expert. I'm not even a U.S. expert. You know, I have a lot more insight into Chinese thinking on many things than I do in either the U.S. or Australia. But I sort of find there's a number of things that are very different between our countries and, and between us and China that shape a lot of these questions. The first one I'd like to ask my Australian counterparts is what is the degree of loss of sovereignty that you're willing to live with? National security is being free from foreign dictation. And you no longer need to occupy a country to be able to control their future. I think China has demonstrated that a lot with other tools of political, economic coercion, lawfare. So the question for other countries in the region is not, you know, do you need the United States to protect you against military attack? It's, uh, you know, can we rethink and revitalize the alliances so that countries like Australia are more resilient and better protected against other forms of infringement on their sovereignty, like we see right now with, with China's economic coercion against Australia? The second thing I like to point out is that if you read Chinese sort of military writings, their primary focus is on the United States. Specifically, what will the U.S. military do in a wide variety of contingencies? What this tells me is that the China we're dealing with today is a well-behaved China that is deterred by the United States. If the United States military was not here to deter them, how do you think China would be behaving? Now, maybe people believe that China is just a you know peace-loving country that wouldn't be using these military tools. But to go back to why I think this issue is coming about, about Taiwan, when they have the tools, they start using them. We've seen that time and time again. So in my mind, it's very strange when colleagues ask me, like, what will the allies be expected to do? Mm. Because countries like Australia have so much more skin in this game than the United States does. Right. Like we have our own internal markets that drive us like we are self-reliant in terms of oil and natural gas. Countries in Asia should be clamoring for the United States to be deterring China versus the United States trying to get our allies on board to help us deter. So I think it's very interesting dynamics, but it comes down to, I think, different expectations of sovereignty and different expectations of you know, what China would look like if it were not deterred. I think that's what is leading us in some cases to diverging threat perceptions and reactions to what's happening in the region. Mm. Do you think deterrence is a effective thing in the long term? Because China is a major trading partner of not just Australia, but of many democracies and, and countries throughout the world. How effective is deterrence going to be in the long run if they're trying to say, don't attack Taiwan, China, or this might happen? So the problem is that the United States focus on deterrence has been demonstrating our willingness to defend Taiwan. Mm. But the question is no longer U.S. willingness, right? In the 1990s, if the United States were going to fight, China would lose, right? So the main factor determining Chinese thinking on Taiwan was yes or no, is the United States going to intervene? But now, since they have the military capabilities to succeed in spite of U.S. intervention, I've heard this time and time again from my Chinese colleagues, they assume U.S. military intervention. 
And then they ask the question of, you know, can we still succeed and what can we do in yeah. spite of that? So demonstrations of force to show that, oh, you know, we're willing to fight. These are less important than demonstrations of capability that we will prevail once we do fight. So that's where I believe the real focus of deterrence has to be. But it has been successful, right, for decades and decades and decades. So anyone who says that we can't shape China's choices or Chinese behavior it's just wrong because we have been successfully deterring them for quite some time. Okay, so day one after Beijing consolidates control of Taiwan, and I'm assuming that it all goes ahead there, what do you think regional security will look like? These are bad scenarios. Some are worse than others. If, if Beijing was able to do, if the United States tried to defend Taiwan but failed, mm. that is the absolute end of the U.S. role in the region. Right, because there's complete certainty of the United States' inability to defend its allies. I think in that case, we see countries less willing to host the United States. And the United States does require, because we're not a resident Asian power, presence in other countries to be able to project power. We see much more balancing towards China. And that means, again, that China has more power and influence to shape the region in its favor, which tends not to be in the direction uh, that is favorable to countries that have the same values as the United States, like Australia. If they manage to consolidate control and the United States did nothing, that's actually better than if we tried and failed, because at least then there's still a degree of uncertainty. It's like, okay, well, maybe the United States didn't do anything with Taiwan, but that doesn't mean the United States wouldn't defend Australia, wouldn't defend Japan or what have you. In that case, there's uncertainty about the U.S. commitment. There's no new information about U.S. capabilities. Um, And so that might not necessarily mean the end of the U.S. role in the region, though obviously it would be severely, severely weakened. People sort of always talk about the costs to Beijing of taking Taiwan, but a huge benefit is defeating the United States. I mean, if they do manage to defeat the United States, they are the new regional hegemon, and then everyone living in this neighborhood is abiding by the rules and norms that China sets. So Taiwan, in many cases, is that kind of litmus test for the future of the region, whether you know the people of Taiwan want to be that or not. I think that's kind of the direction we're going. Mm, it's almost like it's a better option if America isn't confident in engaging China to ride off Taiwan. So I think it depends on how much warning we get. So I don't want to come out and say, you know, the United States shouldn't defend Taiwan. I think the policy should be that the United States should defend Taiwan and prepare to prevail in that defense. Mm. Um, There are trade-offs between defense and deterrence. So in some cases, some actions you take to deter reduce your ability to defend and vice versa. So governments also have to ask themselves what are their priorities. Now, I personally prefer a world in which deterrence is weaker, but if there's a war, the United States prevails. Other people seem to prefer policies in which deterrence is stronger, but if it fails, the United States loses. So I'll just sort of give you one real life example, forward presence. So the more assets the United States forward deploys, this is seen as a sign of the US commitment to defend its allies and partners. But because of Chinese missile capabilities in particular, and also airstrikes, those assets would be destroyed in the first hours of a conflict. Yeah. So the more we forward deploy, the less the United States is actually capable of defending its allies and partners. So this is a world in which you have to choose between can we defend or can we deter? And so I think some of these strategic decisions are things that have to be uh, considered right now. And I lean more towards the, you know, maybe it increases the likelihood of a war, but I'd rather we win the war than not. Mm. And so I wouldn't say abandon Taiwan, but if that moment comes where it looks like the United States is not going to get there in time because we didn't get enough warning. 
you know, for whatever reason, then some serious questions have to be asked of, is it worth a show of force, even if we can't change the ultimate outcome? And in that case, maybe I would argue not. It sounds like the warning's there, and and if nothing, your article should be the warning. Uh, So we might take a a couple of questions from the audience now. Uh, We'll start with Edward Vickers. Edward, I believe, if it's the right Edward Vickers, is over in Japan. Hello, Edward. Yes. Hi. Thanks. Um, Yeah, well, my question, is it a question or a sort of statement, comment? You were talking earlier about the implications of what's happened in Hong Kong for Taiwan and for Chinese policy towards Taiwan. I mean, it just seems to me that given that the original sort of purpose of the one country, two systems model or template, I mean, it was originally designed very much with Taiwan in mind. And to some extent, therefore, Hong Kong is a bit of a sort of pilot project, part of the purpose of which is to persuade or reassure the Taiwanese that if they choose this option for reunification, they can be autonomous, they can carry on exercising and enjoying their freedoms. But... I mean, over the past year, we've effectively seen, well, really the cancellation of one country, two systems in Hong Kong, which seems to signal, doesn't it, that that function that Hong Kong originally had, at least in the minds of some Chinese leaders, is no longer seen as significant. They're kind of giving up on the project of persuading Taiwanese people that reunification is a good idea or that it's compatible with any meaningful retention of autonomy. It's basically a question of reunify or else, isn't it? I think it's interesting you put it that way, because I I just came off this call on which some Chinese counterparts were telling me their views of my article on Taiwan. And I found it so fascinating because they don't see it as, oh, we should convince the people of Taiwan. I mean, they had a lot of blame for the Taiwan government, right? That somehow the people of Taiwan were more than happy to consider reunification, but because of the manipulative propaganda of the Thai government, now the people of Taiwan are reconsidering. It's very strange, you know, because that is, while we know about from polling and other things that, you know, the people of Taiwan are not moving closer to desiring unification with the mainland, I would argue that it's not because of the manipulative propaganda of the Thai administration, you know, put that in quotes, but more some of the factors that you're listing, like, you know, they take a look at what it's like to be under Beijing's political control. And they think, well, that doesn't look very good. If we're trying to think of how it shapes Chinese thinking, I don't think their lesson learned is, oh, we need to, you know, rethink this, be more moderate and and employ a more effective reassurance strategy. They're, they've been placing the blame elsewhere. Uh, and so that's another reason why I think, you know, we're more likely to see more aggressive approaches to Taiwan and not more moderate ones in the future. All right. I might give the last question to Beck Strating. I wanted to ask uh, about the South China Sea, which is not quite the focus of uh, this podcast, but there is a relationship between what's going on in Taiwan and what has or continues to happen in the South China Sea. So I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit more about the relationship between those two issues or flashpoints uh, in Asia. But I also wanted to ask your views. There there seems to be a debate in strategic circles about uh, whether or not China has achieved control or the 
capacity to control the South China Sea or turn it into a kind of closed Beijing lake and wondered what your views were and how likely it is that China will be able or willing to export some of its lawfare strategies in that domain to other maritime domains. I mean, I'm particularly aware that there's, you know, this comparison between South China Sea and the Indian Ocean or the polar regions. So I'm wondering how possible it is that China can do what it is doing in the South China Sea in other areas. Those are great questions. I'm going to try to remember the different levels to respond one by one. So the first thing is, again, listening to what China has said, I was at what was then Pacific Command, now Indo-Pacific Command, back in 2009, when I wrote a report saying that China is starting a campaign to control the South China Sea. And this wasn't some brilliant strategic foresight. It's because that's what the Chinese told me they were going to start doing. And that's what Chinese writing said they were going to start doing. And of course, we know that is the beginning of their campaign to basically with the lawfare, but also with the land reclamation, militarization of the islands to be able to control them. So I think now there's very little doubt, though, just like today, I write this article about Taiwan, and there's a lot of pushback. There was a lot of pushback in 2010, when I was running around saying that, you know, that China wanted to be able to push the United States out of the first island chain. But I think now everyone sort of is relatively on board with that. Now, your question is whether or not they can do it. The answer is no, they can't do it yet. When we talk about Taiwan, I think the narrowest point of the strait is 80 miles. You know, China is projecting power across actually a very small distance. The South China Sea is the size of half the continental United States. To be able to, you know, really control the airspace, the sea, the undersea, that is going to take a lot greater power projection capability than they currently have. Now, they're able to hold assets at risk. So especially with the militarization of those islands, and they can put air defense systems on there, anything now that the United States wants to put in the first island chain can potentially be attacked by China. And that's a relatively new development. You know, before the militarization of those islands, it was basically a, a free flying area. So if you look at maps now with like, you know, threat rings and stuff now, it's, it's very difficult for the United States to operate there. Again, they're at this point where they can impact U.S. operations in the South China Sea, but they themselves can't necessarily operate and control that much area. While I am, I don't know, hawkish or pessimistic, whatever you want to call it about China's intentions towards the South China Sea, I see no indication that that is how they view the Indian Ocean, for example. So I think they basically do want the United States out of the first island chain, which is the South China Sea and the East China Sea. They want to have the ability to operate themselves in the Indian Ocean, for example, in particular to protect themselves against potential U.S. forms of blockade or coercion that might take place there that impacts their energy lines. But I haven't seen any indications, whether it's in writing or in the types of expeditionary capabilities that they're developing, that they're going to want to control those areas. I'm not saying that their intentions can't change, but at least when it comes to military capabilities, it's tough. it takes time to build. We'll have some warning. Once I see that warning, I can tell you, okay, 10 years from now, this is what they're going to want to do. So I'm not particularly concerned. Now, of course, you know, this still can create issues for the United States. Maybe they can use their newfound power in those areas to have more tools of coercion against, you know, smaller South Asian countries, for example, but it's not going to be the same as their approach to the South China Sea. And then lastly, connecting this to Taiwan, if the United States doesn't have access to those waters, it becomes very difficult to defend not only Taiwan, but also, you know, Japan, for example. This is why the South China Sea is so critical because of the fact that 
United States needs the ability to project power in the first island chain. If not, we get more and more vulnerable if we're fighting a war from farther and farther away. Yes, maybe you're no longer fighting from Japan. Now it's southern Philippines or Australia, and then it's Guam. Every step we go farther, the more enablers we need, the more tankers we need, the more we're reliant on space. All these vulnerabilities that the United States has that China is more than willing and capable of exploiting. And so there's a lot of debate right now in defense communities about how to deal with this issue. Do we try to devise operational strategies, capabilities, and technologies to just operate from the second island chain? Do we have kind of a mixed posture in which we fight our way in partially to the first island chain, but keep a lot in reserve at the second island chain? All of this is up for debate right now, but it's definitely something of great concern, I think, to people who are focusing on these issues. I just want to ask one more question uh, to wrap it up almost, but your article, which by the way, everyone, you should go and read in Foreign Affairs called The the Taiwan Temptation, Why Beijing Might Resort to Force, has rocked a lot of boats, but it seems like surprised very few people. Like a lot of people are accepting what you've written in the article. And so I just wanted to ask you what the reaction has been and what sort of reaction you've got from the US and their allies, but also from the Chinese people that you've talked to about it? Well, the first thing I will say, when I first floated some of these ideas in a congressional testimony that then became the basis of this article, I got some emails from Chinese counterparts that said, you know, your article is very well received in China. (laughs) I always find this so interesting, you know, like people in the United States might think, oh, yes, Oriana, she's so hawkish. But people in China are like, thank you for telling us what everyone already knows. Like, you know, so, so super boring. And sometimes because I'm so in that Chinese mindset, because that's all I do is spend time researching Chinese views on things. Even I don't realize that what I'm arguing is controversial. So my original pitch to foreign affairs, I said to them, I was like, okay, so we all know that China's planning armed reunification. So given that, Like, I want to write this sophisticated article about the following stuff. And their response was, what are you talking about? Mm. That is like, what do you mean they're planning armed unification? And so I had to kind of go through a lot of the indicators that I had seen. Now, I have gotten a lot of pushback on a number of fronts. And and in particular, there have been some Chinese colleagues that have articulated that China would prefer basically to wait. Now, once push comes to shove, the argument is about timing. They think, oh, it's not beneficial to do this in the foreseeable future. But once it's kind of pressed, okay, well, if Taiwan is never going to join the fold peacefully, then what? It always comes down to kind of this inevitable argument of like, okay, well, then we're going to do this. Mm. But not not today. You know, so I had some colleagues write me in critiques of the article and they were like, oh, you got this all wrong. This isn't going to happen anytime soon. I mean, maybe four years from now. Now, for me, you know, major war in Asia even if we're talking about six years from now, is I still think there's a sense of urgency. So when, when I write this article, when I say this is a possibility, I don't mean to suggest that China is preparing this right now, but we have to make significant changes to policy today if we want to delay this. And I don't know how to prevent it because of the mentality. I don't know how to create a situation in which this would never happen. What I can do as a strategist is try to delay it, delay it, delay it, and then, I don't know, hope for some miracle, you know, I don't know, technological innovation that lets the United States project power more effectively or change in leadership in China or, or something. I don't know. All I can do is is delay it um, for now. So I think Chinese counterparts have said, you know, well, no, we would prefer to gain Taiwan without war. And 
Yeah, I'm sure they do. So mm. agreed. I, maybe I should have highlighted that more. A lot of American colleagues disagree with my assessment. The cost, you know, they're like, you know, this would be the end for Beijing. They would be an international pariah. I think if they're right in those assessments, and if Beijing believes that, then they're absolutely right. Beijing would not take the risk. But I think there are a lot of indicators to suggest that that wouldn't be the outcome, especially if the use of force was quick, swift, and, and successful. I think we have a disagreements about the cost. As I mentioned, there's a slight disagreement about whether they're ready now or they need a couple more years for the joint landing. And, and then there's some people that just believe that China can wait forever. Like, why do they ever need Taiwan? Why can't they just be patient forever? I think it's human nature when you have certain goals and they're within your reach to want to grab them. So I think this just comes down to fundamentally different opinions about, you know, what China wants. And, and, you know, I think this goes back to a lot of the U.S. strategy I see from the past couple of years, like the pre-Trump era was trying to convince China they're better off being number two. Mm-hmm. You should want the United States to be in charge. And that was never seemed logical to me as a strategy. And I think that's kind of what we think about Taiwan. Like, oh, we just have to convince them they're better off never achieving what has been their ultimate objective since their founding of 1949. Yeah. So those are, you know, some ideas, but it is at the very least, it is sparking a debate. We are considering the possibility of conflict. And I think what that means is we're more serious about how to prevent it. And that's my ultimate goal. Thanks very much for your time today and your views. It's uh, been a, a really interesting chat. And uh, yeah, I almost hope you're wrong. But <laughs> I always hope I'm wrong, you mm. know, but, but hopefully by bringing up these issues, we do have changes in policies that ensure that, you know, 10 years from now, people can look back and say, you know, she was so wrong about those things. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. You can follow Ariana Skyler Mastro on Twitter. She is at OS Mastro. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>